0: Listener Production. Just how far would you go to become a parent? Easily 250 hours of research.
1: One surrogate, one egg donor, 14 embryos, a team of 16 people, 24 flights, and 250,000 Australian dollars and counting.
0: Today on Feed Play Love, one dad talks about the lengths he went to in order to have a family.
1: Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt.
0: Sean Zepps is a musical enthusiast, podcaster, writer and parenting influencer. He's a husband and a father of twins, Stella and Cooper, and also now an author. His book, Not Like Other Dads, tells the story of how, in spite of what the world told him as a young gay man he would achieve his dream of having children. Sean, welcome to Feed, Play, Love.
1: Thanks for having me again. Again.
0: I remember the first time that you came on this show and I remember being so impressed on how you approach life and parenting. And I remember thinking, but he's so young. Like, how (laughs) is he so mature and so put together? And now I think I understand a bit more about why you're such a great parent. Oh, good.
1: <laughs> That's what the book is for. To hand to my friends, to be like, here's a little more background research. Here you go. This is in. why
0: I am the way I am. Mm. Now, this is my last interview for Feed Play Love. Oh, my
1: God. We've been uh-huh. doing this for four years. A long time. is the last, first time I spoke to you. Yeah.
0: So strap yourself in because I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle in. <laughs> no one's going to tell me I can't <laughs> do what I want in my last interview. Um, so much in this book. I love this book. Look, mothers can be a big influence on who we become in the world. Mm. Tell me about your mom.
1: My mom is a legend. She's like best described, I think, as Mary Poppins. I use that reference in the book a couple of times, both for her, her role models in her mother, my abuela, and then also myself, really. It's A very particular type of parent, but I think we can all picture it when we think of Mary Poppins, which is someone who's very creative, someone who uses their hand, someone who is crafty, someone who likes to make things from scratch. My mother's motto was always, if you want something, make it yourself. Like, get out there and do it. (laughs) We didn't go out and buy things. She made our clothes. She made our foods. If we wanted to go travel the world, we would go to the library and buy books, recipe books, like about that country. She just is the kind of woman who always was up for fun, for play. We were dressing up and putting on shows and playing characters. Every challenging aspect of parenthood, like cleaning a room, became a game. The music was turned on and we would get dressed up and we would turn into wizards who would clean the space. (laughs) You know, childhood was fun for me. Mm. And that obviously had a massive impact on me as a young queer kid. I was allowed to play a lot further into adulthood than the average person, which is probably why I am the way I am. When people meet me, they're, you're so fun. You're such a fun dad. That didn't come from nowhere. Yeah. And I can't give her all the credit. My dad is equally as playful and and crafty and clever and you want to be a toilet for Halloween? (laughs) Let's make the toilet seat.
0: (laughs) That is a fabulous picture in the book. I didn't think I wanted children, mm. but I grew up with the expectation that one day I would get married and have kids. What was your experience like growing up?
1: Some of my earliest memories, like foundational pillars of my childhood, either purely because they were observed by other people and passed down to me, or they, they actually are real. Sometimes it's hard to unpick, right? It's like an obsession with mom's. In all shapes and forms, like real, fake, my mom, I I was just obsessed with her. I still am very much and obsessed with my grandmothers, both of them, obsessed with characters on television that were women. Like people would watch – my family would watch The Brady Bunch and I just thought Carol Brady was (laughs) magnificent. I'm like this little kid who has no right to be addicted to her. Mm. The whole world would think, well, obviously you'll be addicted to the youngest boy because he's closest in your age mm. or maybe the oldest boy because he'll be a role model or maybe the girls because they're beautiful. And here I am being like, wow, Carol Brady's an excellent mother. <laughs> but my earliest role model, like my earliest obsession was legitimately in Beauty and the Beast, Mrs. Potts. And I just have this narrative in my head forever and ever up until meeting my husband when he said, what's your favorite movie? And I said, Beauty and the Beast, and he laughed at the bar. <laughs> How is this grown-ass man – but it's just something inside of me. I yeah. really believe I was born either with so much empathy that I understood that these women were actually the heroes and they weren't getting the credit they deserved. Or I saw in them something that I have, which is empathy, a desire to make things easy for others, a love for children, and play, 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 play. And so, yeah, it's it's been a really long journey. I would say – really up until 11, before society told me it wasn't okay, I thought if I had a choice between being a dad or a mom, God, I wanted to be a mom.
0: so interesting. Mm. Because let's talk about that point at 11 years of age, because you were raised in a Catholic faith. Mm. And a lot of people these days don't have a, a strong religious faith. A lot of people are agnostic. So they may not understand the influence your faith had on your life and your thoughts around becoming a mum or having children. Mm. Can you describe what it was like growing up in the Catholic Church? Like what was the church to you as a young man?
1: For the first 11 years of my life, I loved every aspect of the Catholic faith. The very best of what religion can provide, if you are within a family with good, strong morals, and a family that is willing to accept, is beautiful community, structure, gorgeous music. The foundation of my musical obsession comes from the church, Uh, plays, scripture, understanding meaning and depth, um, an honesty, moral compass. There was just so much about it that I thought was beautiful The problem, the large elephant in the room for anyone who is different through the lens of the Bible, is that every aspect of that was real to me. There was no way in hell, pun intended, that I was challenging those ideas. It very much like Santa Claus for for people who aren't religious. It was real in every way, shape, or form. And that meant that It scared me as much as it brought me joy. How I've been articulating it recently for people who don't understand is, so they understand the gravity of this indoctrination, is I believed the second I realized I was gay, so really starting around eight, but solidifying by 11, that that year where everything changed, I believed with every inch of my being that I was destined to go to hell. And I believed that everyone around me would would go as well because wow. of me. I don't know where it came from, but it was this – I, I sh- shifted my prayers from forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I would start saying forgive me, Mother, for I have sinned. Forgive me, Stephen, my brother. I was so sorry that I had been created like this. And if I acted on it, that I was going to send our entire family
0: to eternal, you know, damnation. And, and- – Hell as a place is very hard f- for me to get my head around because I wasn't brought up with that concept. Mm. But you believed as an 11-year-old boy that hell was somewhere you would go.
1: I knew. And it, and it's not just that you're there for a day, right? It's if you go to heaven, you're there forever with mm. all of your family, forever and ever and ever and ever. That sounds and like torture as much as exactly. my family. <laughs> so when you're growing up and you're a young kid and – You know, you hear every single Sunday that these places exist and they're real, and you learn that who you are and the way that you love and who you will one day potentially have sex with is going to send you there. Well, what would an 11-year-old do? I started to think that maybe it would be better to end my life then, so I didn't end up there. If I just kill myself now before I end up in hell, at least I'll go to heaven, and then my whole family will. And so between the ages of 11 and 15, there is a lot of dark, dark depression, anxiety, social anxiety, anxiety around the church, anxiety around my family, anxiety about relationships, anxiety around fantasies, the dreams I was having. You start to get aroused by things and then you turn on yourself. I stopped sleeping. I started cutting. Like It became a very dark place and it's all at the hand of that Bible and all at the hands of that religion and of that God. And so, yeah, this fantasy of loving mothers, believing that I would one day be it, realizing I'm gay and going, well, you can't, gets immediately replaced with just live a life of a lie. That's what they want you to do. You don't go to hell unless you act on it. So why don't you suppress those desires and start lying? So I got into relationships with women. I started sleeping with women. I was in long-term relationships with women who were old enough to be called women, right? Mm -hmm. Women who could have had babies, and so it all, it really took me accidentally, I write about this in the book, getting a girl pregnant. Well, not really accidentally, you know, getting a girl pregnant. <laughs> so I thought. She ended up not being pregnant. But, you know, finding out I'm going to become a father and realizing as I looked into this girl's eyes that she wasn't a sub-character in my movie. She was the lead in hers.
0: Mm. And I was
1: like, I'm about to ruin her life. She's going to be the one with the gay husband. She's going to be the one with the husband who cheats on her. And in that moment, I decided – I'm going to step away from the church. I'm going to come out of the closet. I'm going to break this girl's heart. I'd rather live a life without lying, which, again, goes against the moral compass of this religion, treat others the way you want to be treated kind of energy, and then I'll just deal with the ramifications, which in my case was you know, going to hell. But what I decided in that moment was you have to come out of the closet, and the moment I did that, I left inside that closet the dream of being a parent. That is the full journey.
0: Wow. Wow. So much for a kid to go through, like from 11 to 15. And I also in that moment think of your mother. Mm. Like I know that you ultimately, you, you explain this in the book. You, you decided you're going to baby step out of the closet and say you are bye yeah. before embracing. <laughs> Test the waters. You <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Test the waters. Yeah. Um, have you ever talked to your mom about that period and and whether she had a sense? Because it's very hard to imagine that she wouldn't have known that yeah. you were really grappling with some dark stuff.
1: It's really interesting. I had to obviously speak with her, I mean, probably 100 hours through the writing of this process of this book over the course of two-year period. Like, we've spoken in detail, most of which was me telling her my story for the first time in many ways and her having to grapple and deal with that. And some of it was her Regurgitating back to me some memories she had. She has always known that I was different. And when I say different, everyone listening knows. I have always been a flamboyant campboy. <laughs> no one looked at me and was like, I wonder if he's straight. Like, no one. <laughs> the world was just different. So yeah, like we didn't yeah. talk about it as enough. But if I was the kid being raised today, every single mom in the mom's group would have been like, oh. Look how precious that little boy is. (laughs) I wonder if he's gay. So she knew really early on, and she was coaching my dad, like, from the age of five. This is going to happen. Be prepared. This is going to happen. Be prepared. But she's still a really beautiful religious woman to this day and believes God created everyone. Like, she believes God is obsessed with me, that I am going to heaven, that he made me gay on purpose to change the world. Like, that's her full belief. And so she just... Did her best to support me, to tell me constantly that God loved me no matter what. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like she was basically like, He knows your secret and He doesn't care, and neither do I. But that didn't really matter. I was a little kid who thought, She's my mom. She has to say that. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I had this beautiful mother who always knew, who believed that the church that she was bringing me to each weekend wouldn't be the problem it actually was she just thought i'm going to give him a strong moral compass my god loves him and if other people say otherwise those aren't her people Mm. and so yeah it was really tricky for her when she realized i was anxious when she realized my i've started to like exhibit signs of social anxiety i wasn't sleeping when she discovered that i was cutting um she decided i don't have the answers here this is probably a child who's dealing with some serious sexual issues. She didn't link it to church at all. She just thought, here's a kid who's probably gay, who's clearly struggling, most likely because of bullies. I don't have the answers. I'll put him in therapy. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, late 90s, you weren't chucking your kids in therapy unless you got a divorce. Right. right? That's okay. the only, I had only ever heard of it that way. Yeah. Like, oh, she's going to therapy because her dad left. And so it's a very big step. I'm very impressed because when I started therapy, I never stopped. I have been in therapy since I was like on and off.
0: I can believe it hearing that story. I'm like, Jesus, that would take <laughs> He needed to get in therapy, up. right? Yeah.
1: But I'm real proud of her because that at, in therapy all throughout the last years of high school and into my first years of college and as I transitioned into adulthood in New York, I was able to do the work I needed to do to unpick my religious upbringing, that relationship to my family, And what it would mean for me to potentially take that internalized homophobia that said I couldn't be a parent, shatter that, and take a step forward, which is obviously where I am today.
0: So how old were you when you first went to see the therapist?
1: I think I was like 12, like 11 or 12, like very early on. And then 15 is when I started to like seriously sit down and go on medication and and build like a mental health plan. And then I went 15 all the way until 35
0: I asked that question because, as I mentioned at the top when I first met you and I was like, why has he why is he so mature and sensible and so much insight and that's all through this book as well? do you think that starting to see a therapist at such a young age helped you to be so emotionally aware and to have the insight that you have into yourself and your relationships?
1: definitely. the great gift that my four big therapists of my lifetime. I've I've seen seven, but the four that are like fundamental pillars that I could write entire books about, like the phases of my life that I learned valuable lessons, all four of them gave me a great gift, which was like stepping out of my own story. I have a monkey brain just like everyone else's. Mine is probably faster and more intense and very Scared, And so my social anxiety, which obviously stems from a childhood and a religion that made me fearful of who I was and my actions and the way I sounded and looked and the way that I loved, I needed other people who weren't directly in my orbit to give me the confidence and the skills to be able to like step outside of my own ego and having people you don't know and don't love kind of challenge you or bring new perspectives to the table or give you coping mechanisms that sit outside of the way your family communicates, the way your family works, is a really powerful gift. And to have to start to flex that muscle at such a young age absolutely shaped me. I remember my mom said recently, you know, at some point along the way, your work in therapy distanced you from us, mm. like you pulled away because you weren't willing to settle anything other than very strong boundaries. Um, And we saw it happening in front of us. This is not our child. This is someone who has evolved in many ways past us as far as like emotions are concerned. And that's a gift that I was able to give back to them, I think, this beautiful family. But yeah, I think therapy fundamentally shaped the way I look at the world, It fundamentally has changed the way I communicate with others who are struggling, and it's absolutely changed the way that I parent. It's the greatest gift. I would would encourage anyone who has a child who is struggling, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have access to the script in your child's head. I've said that on this podcast twice, Mm. and this is the third time, because I just think it's so powerful. You think you know, you do not. You think you get them. You do not have access to every sentence. It's impossible. Mm. As adults, we understand that. Your husband or wife or partner can't read all the little lines and thoughts in your head unless you speak them out to them. They might infer. They might have hypotheses. So for me, like going to therapy and learning how to talk out loud and understanding that it's really important. To communicate if you want anything back. I just think for young people who are struggling and you're watching them and you're observing and you know that there's problems and you're trying your best to communicate and you think there's a problem, you don't have to have all the answers. Mm. They can go into a safe space separate from you and learn to flex that muscle of of caring for themselves.
0: And I think that would be very comforting to a lot of parents because when you have a young child that was Mm. your age, 11 or younger, needing to see a counselor. Yeah. It can be really frightening as a parent. You think, "Oh, they're they're troubled, and it's only going to get worse, and then they're going to be a teenager." But actually, your story shows that it was the start of something really positive in your life totally. that led you to be the incredible man you are today.
1: I think it saved my life, absolutely.
0: This book is also, I think, a bit of a love song to Josh. Absolutely. So, Josh being your husband. Yeah. um, Now, we know he's a great guy Mm because we read the book. If you haven't read the book, if you you don't know, listen to him on the radio, (laughs) local (laughs) radio, 702 in Sydney. Do you think watching your parents' relationship influenced the kind of partner you ended up choosing in life? No. Really? (laughs) That's so interesting because you talk a lot about their – they have a great strength bond. of a relationship.
1: Yeah. I would say the one thing that they modeled unbelievably well for us was this like constant love and, and affection and their great outward communication and PDA that showed the great love uh, of their lives that they had. They're very similar and my husband and I are extremely different. Are you? Yeah, we are we should we You're should. You're both n-
0: brainy though.
1: We're definitely <laughs> like nerd like a brainy people, but he I'm like social emotional intelligence and he's like fact and science uh. and reason. Like if I had chosen to go down the path of my parents, I would have probably found someone very similar to me who wanted all the same things that I wanted in life and we Have basically disagreed on everything. (laughs) We are so oil and water, like, and yet it works for reasons, you know, far outside. What I wanted was someone who was going to challenge me. Mm -hmm. I'm really drawn to people who force you to think differently. Josh is at his core a person who is not willing to settle for normalcy. He despises cancel culture. He loves to challenge ideas. He will poke the bear and make sure you're sure of what you're thinking. And that was so sexy to me because <laughs> I lived in a bubble in a small town. Yep. I speak into an echo chamber every day. A bunch of moms who follow me online are just like me. All of my friends are queer. Like I just talk and everyone's like, yeah, me too, me too. And Josh constantly enters <laughs> the conversation and is like, what about the opposite? And I just loved that about him. But, mm-hmm. it, yeah, but I don't think I – followed the path of my parents. I think what I have done accidentally is found someone who puts me first and my father puts my mother first. Mm. And my mother and I don't put our partners first. (laughs) We put our children first, right?
0: Yeah. And so in many
1: ways, that is the one kind of similarity was I have found a man, and I think it's clear in the book, Josh is like Team Sean no matter what he will push himself out of the way. He like will do anything for Sean, and that is Allah, my father.
0: Yeah. Mm. You describe him as a philosopher. Yeah. How did his mindset impact the foundation of your relationship? I'm not sure if you can remember this exact part of your book where you talk about— how you decided you'd be together because that to me was so interesting.
1: Yeah, he is a philosopher. Like he's born at the wrong time. He's, you know, problematic through the lens of modern day media, which is like everything must be safe and very to the left or very to the right. Josh sits right in the center, loves to challenge ideas. But like a modern philosopher in the sense that if you bring a problem to him or a question or even an answer, he's like, cool, and cool. And even if it's like pure fact and science, he's like, are we thinking about the question wrong? He is a philosopher. He loves to like break things apart and break things apart and break things apart. And so when we first started dating, I mean, God, it was fun. You know, everything was a challenge and and we had to rip things apart. And the section of the book you're talking about was he just comes to this dinner or this bar one night and he was like, what would it look like to restructure the way we date? What would it look like to choose almost marriage vows today, months into our relationship? Do we think that modern day society has broken too far away from this idea that everything is worth fighting for? You know, back in the day, our grandparents met, they were married after three months, and then they all survived 80 years together
0: (laughs) until they died, like all of them.
1: That was the way in which we loved back then. It was Not so dissimilar even to some arranged marriages where you're meeting someone for the first time, but there's no out. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. Nowadays, we have lots of outs. 50% of us choose to get out, and uh, many of those choose to get out multiple times. (laughs) Nothing wrong with it. In most cases, you probably should get out.
0: Mm. But Josh
1: just said, What would it look like? What would that look like? Let's break it apart. Let's look at every past relationship. Let's look at our parents. How do they survive? What came out of that conversation was, How do we develop communication that is so strong we are constantly challenged, whether it's a calendar invite every Friday where we're sitting and talking about our emotions, where we can challenge, are you happy? If you're not happy, what are we doing to fix that? And basically like months into our relationship, this guy who wasn't perfect for me in every way – was like, I want to take this really, really seriously. There's no way it's going to end. And then it never did. And Mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe it would because that has become the backbone of our relationship. If there's a problem, we talk about it. If it's not working through communication, we go to couples counseling or we seek additional means of working. We take breaks from each other. Like by going on a holiday for a week, we're easy in the way that we parent. This is too hard for me, Josh. Can you take the kids for two days? Yes. That framework is like an open relationship for communication where you're constantly willing to listen and work on things. It's not for everyone. It just happened to work for us.
0: Oh, it sounds like what we all should be doing. Mm,
1: if possible. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you and Josh got married mm. and decided quite soon after that you wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. They're both very clear decisions, right? Marriage possibly more simple than having children, yeah. it's not a clear path forward with kids for you and Josh, either mentally or physically. Mm. What mental obstacles did you need to overcome in order to have your kids?
1: Mentally, it's unpacking that internalised homophobia and, and not just internalised, like societal, very in-your-face homophobia. Am I setting these children up for failure? Am I making their life more difficult than it needs to be? Am I putting myself first in a selfish way just because I want this experience that the universe hasn't wanted for me naturally? Am I putting our entire family, myself included, in danger by being a gay, open family? You know, all of those decisions have to be grappled with and each one of the sentences I've just said, each individual thought is a year or two of therapy on its own. And so making the decision after falling in love with him and choosing to get married that I wanted to have kids with him and that I deserved and thought we would be great at it and then choosing to pull the trigger was like endless, serious – and now you all know my husband, like serious <laughs> dates, like <laughs> yes. very deep and like – Beautiful philosophical ideals. But what it ended up coming down to, like the answer to all of those questions, is what would happen if we weren't constantly thinking about other people, if that wasn't the crutch? Because the reality is, straight people aren't worried about that at (laughs) all. You just move forward, you're not concerned about even what the, the neighbor down the street might think of you. And through most of our time on earth, but really in the last 60 years, as people who are, quote, different, not white and straight or just not white, have chosen to come together, they've all dealt with that. So what's stopping us from dealing with it too?
0: Mm. What about physically?
1: Physically, I mean, I guess the obvious elephant in the room is like there's no (laughs) woman. Uh, There's no womb at this stage. And so what are we going to do about that? We were really lucky that early on in our journey – I started to kind of engage friends and family members about the potential because I had heard about it through a friend from college of donation of eggs. My best friend, my other best friend, my other best friend, my sister, my aunt, my cousin, my mother, like everyone. I literally sat my mother down and was like, do you still have eggs? <laughs> she was like, no, baby. No, I do not. They're gone. Um, but I just, I just thought, well, what's the harm? Mm. There are people out there straight women who can't carry children, whose sisters are donating eggs or carrying their children. I'm seeing the stories in the news. What would stop me from doing the same thing? And so I just like put feelers out and sent articles. And looking back on it, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I was like a PR agent for my future children. I was like (laughs) doing the work to get this to happen. We could have adopted. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking that. And, And they do. A lot of queer people struggle with the decision to go down the surrogacy path or even Anything other than adoption or fostering when there are so many children that need homes is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. But for me, whether it's right or wrong, I just had this internal driver to look at a child that was mine and his. It's probably the same fantasy or dream or drive, like innate drive to co-create. With someone that you love, like, it feels out of your control. It felt out of my control. I, like, watched the story of me going, if that's an option, I'd like that option. If I can't have it, that's fine, too.
0: But also, why should it be queer people who adopt all the many children who need a family in the world. Yeah. Straight people can do that too. Exactly. And they don't feel the weight of that decision.
1: And again, when you remove yourself from societal expectations and you really just focus on what you want without concerns of others, well, that's what bubbled up for me. So I can't really be embarrassed about that. That's just the truth.
0: Mm, and you've got two beautiful kids. Yeah, and it worked
1: out. And we have kids that are biologically both of ours, and that is unheard of. Like, there aren't that many families that you have had that great You should explain that, kid. by the way. Sure.
0: How, how was it able that it was both of you come together? Because yeah. it's so clear when you look at them yeah. that they are.
1: You can definitely tell. And it's so funny. So many people are like, how is it possible they look like <laughs> both of you? I'm like, well. So a female member of my family, we don't disclose the information of who she is uh, just yet because we – want to make sure the children are involved and can consent with that information being shared. I do not share it in the book either. Mm -hmm. Um, But a female member of my family, after hearing about this and thinking about it very seriously, consulting with a psychologist, with a doctor, going through the whole process, decided to gift us her eggs. Because it was a member of my family, I obviously couldn't donate my sperm. That is not good. And they wouldn't even allow it legally. (laughs) So that was easy. My husband was the one donating. So we tested his sperm. We tested her eggs. And together we were lucky enough to have 14 embryos, two of which are Stella and Cooper.
0: Wow. Mm. You didn't think you would be a good dad to a girl.
1: Oh, God, no. And what I'm were still your wondering doubts? if I will be <laughs> oh, That's ridiculous. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, of course it is.
0: <laughs> so, what were your doubts before you had Stella? I mean, listen, everyone
1: listening is probably my age, a little bit younger, or a lot older, and all of us understand that the universe makes it very clear. That the bond between a mother and a daughter is basically what parenting is. It's all the posters. It's all the podcasts. like media tours, all the great books. And I just had this theory which felt very certain to me. Like I didn't think I was making it up or being anxious that a daughter needed a mother. When you just look at the way the script is written for parenthood and the experience of just being a human – when you are a boy struggling with a specific problem, usually the dad is brought in. If it's, if it's a physical, sexual, puberty-driven thing, learning to shave, uh, what happens when you first, you know, whatever, birds <laughs> and bees chat, the dad deals with that. And when a young girl, like my sister, needs to learn to shave or gets her period for the first time or needs to put in a tampon, dad isn't well yeah, coming into the bathroom to do that unless he's a solo dad. And if he is, there's like a whole media story about like how brave he was. So when I came to parenthood and we decided – when you're going through the IVF process in America, you do get to decide. Like it it, it gets a lot of negative press. But like they say, we were doing genetic testing. Do you want to make a decision about gender? And so I was like, I mean, I don't want to have a daughter. I don't want to fail her. I don't want her to come home looking for her mom. I don't know anything about a vagina. <laughs> her, it's like I don't know how to put a tampon in. I've never braided hair before. I've never painted nails. I've – don't know how to shave. I don't know what cramps are like. I don't even know how often a period comes. Like, I have been failed by society and the education system. I'm a grown-ass man about to become a dad. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't know how to support her. So why would I put her in that situation? That's really how I felt.
0: And what changed your mind? My husband
1: was like, If we had a daughter and she transitioned to be a son, would you randomly in the blink of an eye become a good dad? Of course not. If you have a son who turns out to be wildly masculine and you're not that, are you therefore failing him because you're feminine? Does our son – need to be feminine for you to be good? Like, why have you decided that your strengths and your values and your characteristics have to align so perfectly with your child for the two of you to get along or for you to be good at the
0: job? You and Josh need to do a parenting <laughs> podcast just for everyone else. Just yeah. tell us your yeah. discussions. We'll he's, all learn from him He's it.
1: the unsung hero in a lot of these stories because he's just so fact and reason-based and, and I'm not. And a lot of the women who follow me aren't either where it's so emotional and so in our heads and obsessed with like the way in which it's supposed to work the script and Josh Mm -hmm. is like not capable of or isn't interested in living that way and so yeah in this one situation it was like one conversation which I refused to admit to him in the moment that he was right but I was like (laughs) oh it makes so much sense gender has nothing to do with it it absolutely doesn't and I just want to be a dad. I'm not actually fantasizing about being a dad to a boy. I don't think anyone really does. There's a small part of us. Mm -hmm. I think if you asked people in the privacy of a room and you knew no one would hear it and they were women and you said, what would you rather have, a daughter or a son? I guarantee you most people say woman and vice versa for men. And I was just admitting it out loud that I felt more comfortable having a boy. But what's funny is like I am so such a good dad to a daughter. I was meant to be a father to daughters. It just took that hurdle. Um, And I write a lot about that. And I think it's valuable if you don't have kids and you're interested that you read those chapters so that you can kind of challenge yourself to think about why you want what you want.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I wanted a girl and thought I'd be lost once I had a boy. And he was divine from the minute he was born. You're right. It has nothing to do with gender. And also... I think our kids are here to challenge us and make us evolve, right? Mm. So if we think we are one way and we can't actually looking at our child and understanding what they need and what they, um, the support they need from us, that's our big growth journey, right? Because they can turn everything on their head, bless them. And they do. Yes. (laughs) So your start to parenthood, I always find this astounding. Mm. Your start to parenthood was rough. Yeah. Tell me. What possessed you to move thousands of miles from your family with newborn twins?
1: You can't see, but I just rolled my eyes so hard (laughs) into the back of my head because I, like, do not recommend what we did. The truth is my husband got a job offer, and it's his dream job, and he's still there, works for ABC Radio Sydney. It's been his dream job since he was 10. He's worked there. He's supported people. He's always wanted to end up there. He's a journalist at his core, and the ABC as a young kid was just, like, the epitome of what it represented. Of course. And so when he got the job offer, he looked at me and was like, I know the kids are going to be born in two months, but this is a job offer I don't know that we can turn down. Also, at the time, I was the breadwinner who was going to walk away from work. Mm. And so here he is going, well, Sean really, really wants to be a stay-at-home dad. I am going to need to support our family. Here's a job offer that makes it possible. And I don't currently have that, that job with that amount of money here in America. We fought like crazy about it for such a long time. But at the end of the day, it came down to, well, I'm choosing to be the stay-at-home parent. I don't have as much a say in like where that money comes from unless I'm willing to continue being the breadwinner. And I don't want to be the stay-at-home parent. And he, And he was willing to. So like unless I was willing to do that, I didn't have as big of a say. And so, yeah, we played the pros and cons game and it ended up coming – Yeah, the final solution was we were going to move to Sydney when the kids were two months old because that's when the job started. Wild.
0: It is wild. It's only, I think, when we reflect on just what a huge undertaking that is that you realize, right? Yeah,
1: I was thinking about it the other day. You're in a new country. There's culture shock that you don't expect because you just think America and Australia, how different can they really be? And then yet they are wildly different. You can't find any of the food that you are used to, all of your emotional, you know, food you need when you're at your best or your worst doesn't exist. People are speaking and you obviously understand them, but there's a nuance of all of these like colloquialisms that are going totally over your head. For the first time since you were 15, you don't have a job. You don't have any friends. And to make matters worse, Josh's family wasn't even in Sydney. So we're like family-less, friend-less. There were some people. But still, I'm walking the streets each day just like sleep deprived, lonely, and like today's the day you're going to somehow make friends and start your life. It just, I had set myself up for failure in many ways and yeah, it just didn't work out for me.
0: (laughs) It just breaks my heart hearing about that Mm. because um, not everyone chooses to have a mother's group, but definitely having people that are in that particular spot in life Mm makes so much difference Absolutely. to you. And even when you have it, you still struggle. So yeah. the fact that you were so alone, yeah. obviously the mothers' groups of Sydney missed out big time. I agree. Because it would have been so much fun having mm. you there. Do you think that another reason that time was particularly tough for you had to do with the journey you took to get there because you wanted those twins Mm. so badly. You had unpacked so much trauma and pain just to get to a place where you were able to welcome them into the world. And then you ended up in a place where it was awful. Mm. I mean, do you think that just made it even worse? I
1: know it did. Mm. This is a story that really resonates with a lot of women. For so many of us, myself included, who had fantasies of being a mother f- their whole life, even though I stepped away for a while because of society and thought I won't, you know, for most of my life I had a fantasy about being a, a mother or a father. And I just believed that I was going to be great at it. Not only was I surrounded by children from a very young age, I have a ton of younger cousins, I'm the oldest, not only was I an after-school program leader who ran that through high school. Not only was I a nanny, but I had just always been setting myself up for it. And so all of my strengths told me I would be great at it. And then you wake up with this, all the things I've just listed, you're struggling emotionally, you're incredibly tired, and then you're starting to feel like I'm not actually good at this thing I thought I'd always be good at. And that absolutely, the weight of that makes it 10 times worse because you're struggling and thinking, I was supposed to be good at this. And of course, I'm so far away from my mother, who up until that move was like my closest ally, and I'm thinking, I'm not as good as she was, and she was my role model, that sucks. So it was just like, all of it's happening all at once, and yeah, what ended up happening was like a, a, an emotional spiral where it's pulled together, and I'm thinking I've made a massive mistake, and I that, this never should have happened, I shouldn't be here.
0: The thing about all of this is that you now have thousands and thousands of followers on Instagram, mm-hmm. over sixty five thousand followers, really engaged people, they're not just robots yeah, following yeah. you, most of whom I'm guessing are mums. All of them,
1: ninety five percent.
0: ninety five percent are mums. Do you feel accepted now? Do you feel Mm. like you've been embraced by that community that, let's be honest, probably felt like they rejected you at the start? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Maggie Dent told me, her quote is on the cover, so I'll give her a little shout out, but she was the first one to really explain to me that I was a father who was mothering. She just told me in an email, like, you are a father who mothers. And that moment, I wish I had heard that while writing the book because I think it could have tied everything (laughs) together so beautifully, but it was perfect that that I learned it afterwards as well. Every single day, this is not an exaggeration, every day a woman messages me or comments on my videos being like strangers or followers alike and is like, wow, this guy really gets it or I'm shocked at how relatable your content is. And at first it really annoyed me, but throughout the process I realized we we've all just read the same book and the book has told us that there's mothers who do things a certain way and fathers who do things a different way to father is to be tough to be strict to mother is to be warm and creative and loving and all consuming and constantly thinking about fatherhood like look it up in the dictionary that is what the the words mean to our society and here i am a man who is mothering i'm not a mother i'm mm. not i don't want to be either But as a child, I guess what I was observing was the mothering act and thinking, I can do that. And so along the journey, these women saw themselves in my videos and said, this person gets it, void of gender or title. Mm -hmm. And that is what I provide to them. And so, yeah, I guess for a while I was welcomed to the table and I didn't feel I had a right to be there. And now I'm like, this is a table of parents who mother. That is what my Instagram feed is all about.
0: And it's funny because some of the things that you've said today, I almost feel like within that script of mothering, there are societal expectations of mothers that are a disservice to everyone who's doing that job. Absolutely. But we all still feel the pressure, and I feel like that's still part of the script. You've got all of those beautiful things you mentioned, but you're still trying to live up to these expectations we have of mothers yeah. that are unrealistic and unfair.
1: Yeah, you're so right. There's a lot of privilege in me coming to the table without a lifetime of societal pressure that women feel about parenthood or about gender or about, you know, their career. Like, I don't have any of that. So I'm able to come to the table a lot of times and say things that they're thinking without as much fear or judgment of, of being ridiculed or mm. being put in a box. And so I think sometimes I accidentally speak on behalf of the primary caregiver because I can in a way some women cannot and that is important that I make the videos where they see them. It's like I can make videos where I scream about how terrible parenting is at the top <laughs> of my lungs and everyone laughs. But if a woman did that, I think the other women would be vicious to them in the comment section. But then they can share my video and everyone is just allowed to laugh and acknowledge. That's why I take it so seriously. Like there's a serious privilege attached to it. But it's also very important to me. Know your audience. Who is following me? Who is listening? Who's going to pick up and read this book? And what can I do because I don't have that same fear that allows them to see to feel seen and heard? I mm-hmm. think that's maybe the gift of my lifetime, like the, the challenge of my lifetime is to really own that. I've never felt like I fit in on either side. And now I'm like right in the middle. I'm pretty happy
0: about it. Yeah. Well, me too, because your videos <laughs> are super funny. Thanks. In the book, you write about the way other people make assumptions about you or Josh when you're alone with the kids, like saying, you know, where's mommy and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to Stella and Cooper about that?
1: Yeah, interesting. We basically have always told them their truth. Most importantly, not that just that they have two dads, but that almost everyone else is going to have a mom and a dad or, you know, everyone comes from a woman or a, a person with a
0: womb. womb. Yes. <laughs>
1: and they have always known that long before they could fully communicate we were like indoctrinating in them into that truth and so by the time they are old enough to really talk to us about it, it was just a constant reminder. Unfortunately, it was usually after like a bad interaction, but they were young enough that I thought, okay, this isn't going to scar them for life as long as we keep talking about this. And so, yeah, it's just open communication. It's not so dissimilar to the same conversations we've been having in the public sphere for the last couple decades about adoption, which is we've agreed as a parenting community, if we can And it's possible legally that they should have access to the truth from a very early age so that they would never grow up with this massive hurdle or boulder on their shoulder of who am I and where do I come from, whatever, right? And and we have all that information. So why would it not make perfect sense to give them the same amount of information now? The truth is they are met with discomfort and conversations. It's funny, though, they, as they get older, just think those people are silly. Like they constantly laugh at them or they're like they don't understand or they don't get it. They almost feel bad for these people. We also live in the inner west. Yeah. We surround ourselves with people who are a little bit more accepting, right? This is all another privilege. We don't live in some random part of the bush. We are surrounded in a city with people. We've chosen where to live that are creative and accepting. We've chosen schools, you know, where we think that they're more likely to be surrounded by people who are at least accepting. They don't look like them. Their families look differently. And so it's really just open communication before they can even talk and then just drilling home that message.
0: Well, I have to say this is such an honest and beautifully written book uh, and a real privilege to read. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank it. you so much for being my last interview. Oh, I'm so
1: honored. It feels right. It feels <laughs> it like this, feel is right. good, this is a good way to go.
0: It's a good full stop. You are just so
1: amazing. All of us love you so much, like creating this space for the show, sitting down and talking with empathy, like unpacking all these important aspects of parenthood, creating a space, almost like a parenting group that we can come to and learn. You're a gift. Thank you,
0: Sean. That's Sean Sepps. His book is called Not Like Other Dads, and you'll find a link to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.